decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your Squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. It is Wednesday, December 7th, 2022. Today is the 81st anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. And that is something that we need to remember today. Um, This was uh, what brought the United States into World War II in an official capacity. We had already been the Lend-Lease program providing arms to um, Great Britain had already been uh, undergoing. And I believe we were already supplying the Soviet Union with arms. Um, if we weren't, we would be very soon after the Pearl Harbor attack, because after Pearl Harbor, we declared war on Japan and Germany allied with Japan declared war on the United States. And so we were fully embroiled in both the Pacific and the European theaters very, very quickly. And, um, and that was, uh, that was quite a time and that was, the fact that it was 81 years ago, I, it, it's, I was in high school. I was a freshman in high school when the 40th anniversary passed. And I remember Mr. Johnston, the history teacher, getting on the PA system. And of course, to do that back then, he had to go down to the office. There wasn't any way to patch into the PA system from his classroom. So he went down to the office and during homeroom at the very beginning of the school day, and uh, he would uh, he did a uh, 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 presentation on the attack of Pearl Harbor on the 40th anniversary. And so when I was in high school, all of your World War II vets were in their 60s um, because it had been 40 years, and. It was, uh, you know, of course, now, uh, if, if someone was in the service, let's say they lied about their age and they were 16 when they were in the service when Pearl Harbor took place, they're 98 now, 99, 97. I can't do math. But the memory of World War II is passing away. It's quickly becoming history where the written and recorded accounts of the people that were there will no longer, you know, will be the only record we have. We're no longer going to be able to talk to the veterans of that war because they will all be soon be gone. Um, my grandfather, who served in World War II in Korea, um, actually enlisted in the Army in the 1920s and rode the southern border of the United States on horseback uh, as a United States trooper. Um, you know, he, he's been gone for 30 years. So when we look at 
the the generation. I was I was standing in line. I think it was at the bank. It may have even been a fast food restaurant. I'm not sure. But I was standing in line behind a gentleman who was wearing a hat with the Vietnam Service Medal or Service Ribbon emblazoned on it. And it struck me that this gentleman from Vietnam is as old now as the World War II veterans were when I was in high school. And it, it saddened me. It, it really did. It saddened me. The passage of time, <laughs> probably because I'm aging. Um, I was talking to somebody the other day and mentioned the fact that every time I walk past a mirror, I'm surprised by the gray hair. When did that happen? You know, even though I've been gray, you know, I started going gray in my 30s, but I wasn't all gray. <laughs> And uh, I had streaks of gray in my dark brown hair, and now there are streaks of brown in my gray hair. Um, and so, you know, I'm 57. You know, I'm almost 60 myself. And time is passing rapidly. And maybe I'm more aware of it because of my love of history and, and my passion for history. But when I was in college, I took a semester class on World War II. Um, a, a retired professor who came back and taught a, a class, one class every few years, had come back and was teaching a semester on World War II. And it was a one of those where you had to go get, you know, talk to the professor and get into the class. You couldn't just sign up for it. And so there were there were, I don't think there were 30 students in the class. It, it was more akin to a small high school class than, you know, it certainly wasn't a big lecture hall class. But we were talking about World War II for the full semester. And in my mind, growing up, because I had grown up with the stories of, of World War II, World War II had been over for 20 years when I was born. And, uh, but, you know, everywhere there were veterans. And they would speak at our school and many of the teachers were veterans. And so I would, you know, they were, you know, older, getting close to retirement age at that time, but they were, they were there. And so we were, were hearing the stories of World War II. And there were also so many documentaries, uh, Victory at Sea, The World at War, that were, that were staples of weekend afternoon uh, television kind of you know they were they were in reruns at that time but they were used as, as filler um, and so I remember watching those documentaries and everything and of course you know I was six when Tora 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 came out which is still the best movie on the attack on Pearl Harbor um 
it's not some great exciting you know cinema although cinematography is awesome it's not an action adventure movie it's a very accurate uh, docudrama kind of thing and it tells the story of the attack on Pearl Harbor from both the American and Japanese sides um, and it was filmed like I said 1970 and and very well done and it's still the best movie so I mean I was five when that came out and I remember and I still you know, I'll probably watch it today Torah 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 um, I have it on DVD um, if I don't watch it I'll at least have it on in the background and so watching that and, and growing up with World War II, I had always had the idea that because of America's industrial might, once America got into the war, it was inevitable that we would win. And it really wasn't until I took that semester on World War II and started looking at primary source documents, um, you know, things that, you know, high school history class you never do, um, started looking at the, the primary source documents and started really, really digging in because the whole semester was just on World War II. And it wasn't until I did that in-depth study that I realized how close it really was. It was not a slam dunk once the United States was in the war. It was a close deal. Um, certain facts that had never occurred to me, like the fact that the Allies never defeated the Wehrmacht if there was anything like even numbers. That the, the German military was so good that if there were even, you know, anything like even odds, the Germans won the battle. Um, the, the, the German military was so good and so well trained that they could quickly assimilate gr groups of soldiers from different units who had not trained together but had all been, you know, had not been serving together, but had all been trained in the same doctrine, they could assimilate together very rapidly and be an effective fighting force, which the Allies were really not able to do. It took time to integrate units. If, if you know, you had, if you had, you know, a battle and you had half a platoon, this platoon survived the battle, half of that platoon survived the battle, and you put them together into a single platoon, it took a while for the Allies to, to mesh a unit like that. Yet the German units, their doctrine and their training was so good that they could very rapidly, within a, a day or two, they would be a functioning unit. And just things like that. The, the, the superiority of the German weapons you know, the Tiger II tank. Now, the, the Russian tank, the Russian T-43, T-43, yeah, I'm, I'm not a tank guy, but the Russian tank was superior to the German Tiger tank. But that was the only one. 
the the Allied tanks, you know, the Sherman tank. The uh, the Sherman tank was the only gasoline powered tank in the war, and because it was gasoline powered, gasoline is much more explosive than diesel. And the Allied soldiers had a nickname for the Sherman tank. They called it the Ronson Lighter because it lit every time, which was Ronson's uh, slogan. Because a, a Sherman tank that suffered a direct hit would catch on fire and burn ferociously. They were, in many ways, death traps. They're, they were not a superior weapon system by any means. But because of America's industrial might, we were able to crank out so many of them that even though individually they were nowhere close, even, you know, but we would be able to swarm German tanks with a great many Sherman tanks. And that would decide the battle. But one-on-one, -on -one, a Tiger tank would take a Sherman without even batting an eye. And so it, it really wasn't this dominant, you know, we think about the march across Europe in, in after D-Day. You know, D-Day was an iffy thing. You know, that landing, they almost pushed us back into the sea. And had that landing not been successful, we never would have had the march across Europe. And then, you know, the counterattack at the Battle of the Bulge was some of the fiercest fighting in the war. And that was a close-fought thing. And so it was never a sure thing. And it wasn't really until I studied it in depth that I came to understand how close it was. I mean, the, the Battle of Midway was the turning point in the Pacific War. And there were so many things that went wrong for the Japanese. The Japanese had more carriers, they had more planes, they had more ships. It was a battle that should have gone to the Japanese. And yet... The Americans came out of that triumphant. And because of that, you know, they crippled Japan and they were, it was crippled Japan enough that it gave the United States time to recover from Pearl Harbor. And I mean, the fact that the American aircraft carriers were not in port during Pearl Harbor was huge. That was the primary target of the Japanese. They wanted to sink those carriers. But the carriers were not in port. So they attacked the battleships, which, you know, battleships at the beginning of the war were considered the queen of the Navy. Yet, because of the Japanese developments in air power and because the way the, the carrier would rise to supremacy in World War II. During the Battle of Pearl Harbor, when all those, when Battleship Row was bombed, the battleship was no longer the prime weapon system for battles at sea. The battleship 
the, the primary use of battleships in World War II was shore bombardment before landings because battles at sea began to be fought at extremely long range by aircraft that could reach out much further and hit hard. And so the, the aircraft carrier very quickly rose to prominence. If the battleships had not been sunk at Pearl Harbor, I mean, most of them were raised. I think the Arizona and one other were the only two that didn't go back into service. You know, but they went back into service not as, you know, the the powerful champions of the fleet that they had been up until that point. They went back into service as, you know, patrol vessels and shore bombardment. And they went, they would, they would, screen and protect the, the aircraft carriers. The aircraft carrier became the most important of the ship. Um, that was one of the reasons why after the Iowa-class battleships, um, which were the, the most powerful the Americans, um, Americans sent that served into the 90s, the, the, they had a next class, the Montana class, which was going to be bigger and more powerful than the Iowa class. And they had actually laid the keel of the Montana, but very quickly realized we don't need battleships, we need aircraft carriers. And so the construction was halted on the Montana and eventually the hull was scrapped. Um, but, and, and uh, battleships gave way to aircraft carriers and that was the, that was the production push, we need aircraft carriers. And that was what, you know, the, the, the air power. Another thing was Japan, they did not rotate their frontline pilots out of the front. And so after the first few battles that went to the Americans, I mean, many of the, many of the the pilots who bombed Pearl Harbor were at Midway. And I think two of the carriers that launched the attack on Pearl Harbor were sunk at Midway. Well, when those carriers were sunk, those Japanese pilots had nowhere to land. They're out in the middle of the ocean. You know, so many of them crashed at sea and perished if they weren't shot down because they had nowhere to land. Their bases had been sent to the bottom of the sea. And if they couldn't find another Japanese carrier to land on, um, you know, they were lost. And so that experience, meanwhile, the, the Americans had a policy of, of once, the, once they got into the war, the frontline pilots would be rotated out. They'd rotate in and rotate out so that they would come back and train the new pilots. So you had an experience base training the new pilots. Where with the Japanese, all their experienced pilots rapidly ended up dead. So that they, their new pilots did not have the benefit of the wisdom and the experience of the older pilots to help them advance more rapidly in their skill set. So by the end of the war, 
Japanese pilots were no match for American pilots. And also the, the aircraft on the American side had improved to such a great degree that the, the Japanese pilots were no match. But that's all at the end of the war. It's at the end of the war that we really see the Western dominance and the, the Allied dominance in the battlefield at sea and on land. But early on in the war and in the midpoint of the war, it was a close-fought thing, and it could have gone the other way. Imagine if the, if the Battle of Midway had gone the other way, and all of a sudden, you know, now America has no carriers, and there's no way to project power in the far Pacific. Would we have pulled back to the coast and just been a defensive force to keep them from invading the mainland? Or would we have been able to prosecute the war and push them out of the Pacific? You know, that, that's, these are the sort of things, you know, what if, I think, is the, the favorite game of the historian. And uh, so there have been so many books written about, you know, what if, what if the Nazis had won the war? Or what if the Japanese had won the war? All these things. And uh, that's interesting speculation, but uh, it, it is what it is, and it happened the way it happened. But it was, it was not a sure thing from a military perspective by any means early on in the war. So 81 years ago today, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and that brought the United States into World War II. And it is a fascinating time of history and a fascinating time to study. And you think about the, the, the standards of America were much different. We were a much more moral nation. Now, the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties had been a time of great corruption and great immorality in our nation. And, but the, it, and it wasn't so much prohibition that ended that. It was um, the Great Depression. The corruption led to an economic collapse. And that economic collapse, hardship um, among the American people led to a revival of sorts in morality so that, you know, it's been said that the, the Great Depression shaped the generation that won World War II. Um, and that's true, you know. Um, but they had been hardened by depravity, and they had also been instilled with a strong sense of right and wrong. And, and that had shaped our culture. And that would shape our culture through the 1950s, really until the... the children of the World War II generation became the rebels of the 60s and 70s that started the precipitous downcline of morality in the United States. Um, I, I, I have a great deal of respect for the World War II generation. 
and I should have pulled it out. I said my it's over there in a box. My grandfather served in World War II and Korea, and I have the Gideon New Testament, New Testament Psalms and Proverbs, leather-bound, that was given to the servicemen that my grandfather carried throughout World War II. And in the front cover, it has a, a letter from President Roosevelt commending the reading of the scriptures to the troops. And it's a sweat-stained little leather New Testament that falls open to the book of Romans. And, and I think of my grandfather carrying that and, and reading that, uh, you know, quiet nights um, while he was serving in World War II. Just, you know, one of those things that was in his pocket. Um, and uh, you, know, you could tell it was in his pocket. It's sweat-stained. It was carried, you know, through who knows what kind of weather as, as he was in Europe. So, all right. Well, I went on a little longer than I had intended there, but today is day eight of 10 double scripture days. We have two more days after today, and we will be all caught up on our scripture reading from when I was ill a couple of weeks ago. Today we are reading Esther 4 through 10 and Revelation 2 and 3. And before we get started, I want to remind you that Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. Head on over to christianpodcastcommunity.org. Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. You are sure to find doctrinally sound, entertaining, and edifying material at the Christian Podcast Community. All right, well, let us continue as we've... It's hard to say you're beginning when you're 30 minutes into the show. 26 and a half minutes, actually. Well, let us begin, as is our practice, with the Prayer of Confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And now our prayer for the reading of the word. Blessed Lord, who hast caused all holy scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, Esther, chapter 4. Now Mordecai came to know of all that had been done, and he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and cried out loudly and bitterly. And he went as far as the king's gate, 
for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Now in each and every province where the word and law of the king reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many made their bed in sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and to remove his sackcloth from upon him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hephach from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and commanded him to go to Mordecai to know what this was and why it was. So Hephach went out to Mordecai to the city, city square in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of silver that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries to cause the Jews to perish. He also gave a copy of the written law which had been given to Susa for, in Susa for their destruction in order to show Esther and to tell her and to command her to go to the king to implore his favor and to seek him out for her people. Then Haddish came back and told Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Haddish and commanded him to reply to Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king in the inner court who has not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these thirty days. So they told Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai said for them to respond to Esther, Do not imagine... That you in you are do not imagine that you are in the king's house that you in the king's house can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not reached royalty for such a time as this? Then Esther said for them to respond to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews who are found in Sissa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Chapter 5 now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's house in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to his house. Now it happened that when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she advanced in favor in his eyes. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and reached out and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther, and what is your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be given to you. And Esther said, If it seems good to the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the feast that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that we may do the word of Esther. So the king and Haman came to the feast which Esther had prepared. Then, as they drank their wine at the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? For it shall be given to you, and what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther answered and said, My petition and my request is, If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, 
And if it seems good to the king to give heed to my petition and to my request, may the king and Haman come to the feast which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do according to the word of the king. Then Haman went out that day glad and merry of heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with wrath against Mordecai. But Haman controlled himself and went to his house, and sent for and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons, and every instance where the king had magnified him, and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, Even Esther the queen let no one but me come with the king to the feast she had prepared, and tomorrow also I am called to come with her, come to her with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh's wife and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows fifty cubits high made, and in the morning say to the king that Mordecai should be hanged on it, then go gladly with the king to the feast. And the word was good to Haman, so he had the gallows made. Chapter 6 During that night sleep had fled from the king, so he said for them to bring the book of Memoranda, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, from those who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to send forth their hand against King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor and greatness has been done to Mordecai for this? Then the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had entered the outer court of the king's house in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai in the gallow, on the gallows which he had set up for him. And the king's young men said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said in his heart, Whom would the king to delight to honor more than me? Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king clothes himself in, and a horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal count has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be given to the hand of the one of the king's most noble princes. And let them clothe the man whom the king delights to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and call out before him, Thus it, be sh it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe and the horse and clothed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and called out before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hastened home, mourning with his head covered. And Haman recounted to Zeresh his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh his wife said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the seed of the Jews, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs reached Haman's house and hastily brought Haman to the feast, which Esther had prepared. Chapter 7
Then the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day also as they had drank their wine at the feast, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be given to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your eyes, O king, and if it seems good to the king, let my life be given to me as my petition, and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be caused to perish. Now if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the adver adverse adversity would not be worth the annoyance to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said, he said to Esther the queen, Who is this one, and where is this one, who fills his heart to do this? So Esther said, An adversary and an enemy is this evil Haman. Then Haman became terrified between the king and queen. And the king arose in his wrath from drinking wine and went into the garden of his palace. But Haman stayed to seek for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that calamity had been determined against him by the king. Now the king returned from the garden of his palace into the place where they were drinking wine, and Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. So the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbanah, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold indeed the gallows which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king, are standing at Haman's house fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had set up for Mordecai. And the king's wrath subsided. Chapter 8 On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the adversary of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him that he was to, what he was to her. And the king removed his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to repeal the evil scheme of Haman the Agite, and his scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king extended the golden scepter to Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. Then she said, If it seems good to the king... And if I have found favor before the king, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am good in his eyes, let it be written to turn back the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agite, which he wrote to cause the Jews who are in all the king's provinces to perish. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people? And how can I endure to see the perishing of my kinsmen? So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows, because he had sent forth his hand against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews according to what is good in your eyes, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For a written decree, which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring, may not be turned back. So the king's scribe were called at that time in the third month, that is, the month of Sivan, on the twenty-third day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the province, which is extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to every province according to its script, and to every people according to their tongue, 
as well as to the Jews according to their script and their tongue. And he wrote in the name of, the, of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by the hands of couriers on horse riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. In them the king gave the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to make a stand for their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish the entire military force of any people or province which would act as their adversaries, including little ones and women, and to plunder their spoil. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the third... Thirteenth day of the twelfth month, that is, the month of Adar. A copy of that which was written down to be given as law in each and every province was revealed to all the peoples, so that the Jews would be ready on this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers, hurried and hastened by the king's word, went out, riding on the royal steeds, and the law was given out at the citadel in Susa. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and fine white, with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa cried aloud and was glad. For the Jews there was light and gladness and joy and honor. And in each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's word and his law reached, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Chapter 9 Now in the twelfth month, that is, the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, when the king's word and law had reached the point for them to be done, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain power over them, it was turned around so that the Jews themselves gained power over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, to send forth, their, send forth their hand against those who sought their calamity, and no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. Even all the princes of the province, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's work advanced the Jews, because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and the report about him went throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and causing them to perish. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. And at the citadel in Susa, <clears throat> the Jews killed and caused to perish 500 men. And at Parshadatha and Dolphin, Aspatha, Paratha, Adaliah, Eridatha, Parmashta, Arisai, Eridai, and Vyazatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Jews' adversaries, but they did not send forth their hand for the plunder. On that day, the number of those who were killed at the citadel in Susa came to the king. So the king said to the queen Esther, The Jews have killed and caused to perish five hundred men and ten sons of Haman at the citadel in Susa. Now in the rest of the king provinces, what have they done? So what is your petition? It shall be given to you. And what is your further request? It shall also be done. Then Esther said, If it is a good thing to the king, let tomorrow also be given to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the law for today, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king said that it would be done so, and a law was given in Susa. 
and Haman's ten sons were hanged. And the Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and killed three hundred men in Susa. But they did not send forth their hand for the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to make a stand for their lives and to obtain rest for themselves from their enemies, and to kill seventy-five thousand of those who hated them. But they did not send forth their hand for the plunder. This was done on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the thirteenth and the fourteenth day of the same month, and they rested on the fifteenth day and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the rural areas who live in the rural towns make the fourteenth day of the month of Adar a holiday for gladness and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. Then Mordecai wrote down these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, to establish among them to celebrate the fourteenth day of the month of Adar and the fifteenth day of the same month annually, because on those days the Jews obtained rest for themselves from their enemies, and it was a month which was turned around for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Thus the Jews fully accepted which they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the son of Hamadatha the Agite, Agagite, the adversary of all the Jews, had devised against the Jews to cause them to perish, and had cast pur, that is the lot, to throw them into confusion and cause them to perish. But when it came before the king, he said by letter that his evil scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. Therefore, because of the words of this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had reached them, the Jews established and accepted a custom for themselves, and for their seed, and for all those who joined themselves to them, so that celebrating these two days, according to what was written down and according to their fixed time, from year to year would not pass away. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. Thus these days of Purim were not to pass away from among the Jews, nor their memory come to an end from their seed. Then Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to establish the second letter about Purim. And he sent letters to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the king of Ahasuerus, namely words of peace and joy, words of peace and truth, to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their seed with words concerning their time of fasting and their crying out, and the dedication of Esther established these words concerning Purim, and it was written in the book. Chapter 10. Then King Ahasuerus set forced labor upon the land and the coastlands of the sea, and the entire work of his authority and his might, and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had, had made so great, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the king of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus, 
and was great among the Jews and pleasing to his many fellow brothers, one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the peace of all his seed. Now, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, This is what the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have persevered and have endured for my name's sake. You also have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first. But if not, I am coming to you, and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the seed of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write, This is what the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will never be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, this is what the oracle who has the seven, the sharp two-edged sword says. Excuse me. This is what the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and do not deny my faith, even in the days of Atipus, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you that you have there some who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So you also have some who are in the same way, who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. But if not, I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, This is what the Son of God, the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze, says. I know your deeds, and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your last deeds are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and deceives my slaves so that they commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I, have, and I gave her time to repent, 
but she does not wish to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are at Thyatira, who do not have this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give them the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 3 And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, This is what he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church at Philadelphia write, This is what he who is holy, who is true, who has the King of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have given before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I am giving up those of the synagogue of Satan, those who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and make them know that I have loved you, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I also will keep you from the hour of testing, which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and he will never go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, This is what the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. 
I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be manifested and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I, repu I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. And now the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now the Collect for Grace. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by thy governance to do always that is righteous in thy sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, folks, that's Squirrel Chatter for Wednesday. I hope you have the very best of days. We're halfway through the, win the week, halfway to the weekend. And uh, I don't know if I've mentioned it. I am preaching next Sunday at Vaughn Community Bible Church in Vaughn, Montana, just outside of Great Falls. So if you are in that area, we'd love to have you come visit. Be great to see you. Um, if you are a listener of Squirrel Chatter and you're in that area, please come and let me know that you're there. Be good to see you. Good to meet people. All right, folks. Remember to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here tomorrow for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.